0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This is God's Word. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. This is God's word. Thanks, Rue. Please be seated. Uh, Good morning. Again, my name is Ted Sin. I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here at City Church. Um, During our sermon time, if you're visiting with us maybe for the baptism or this is just uh, you're new to us, um, we've been walking through the book of James together. And uh, James was the first book written in the New Testament, um, and it uh, was written by Jesus' half-brother, the apostle or the bishop in Jerusalem. And uh, instead of studying the, ver- uh, the, the book verse by verse, we've been going thread by thread. And so um, what we mean by that is I first went through trials, uh, suffering, um, pain and loss, and I just kind of picked out all the passages in the five chapters of James that dealt with uh, trials, and I went over it several weeks. And then we did pure religion, this concept of um, the difference between um, a, a head knowledge about Jesus and a living, vibrant faith in him. We called that the pure religion thread. Um, we're we're going to add an appendix this morning to the thread that we've been going through, which is the, the thread of the tongue. So I've been teaching on human speech for maybe a month. And I'm going to kind of add an appendix to that. And it's, it's the judgment, Jesus is judge, Appendix. Um, and the reason that I thought to put it here originally, I thought I was going to do one sermon this morning, um, but uh, around nine o'clock, when half the sermon was written, and, um, and I was uh, right about where I think it's 30 minutes in my notes, I realized that uh, this is going to take two sermons. So we're going to add this little mini thread, this two sermon thread on the judgment of Jesus when he returns. We're going to add it on to the tongue thread, and the reason we're adding it to the tongue thread is because when James teaches the most about the tongue is chapter 3. It's like 13 verses in a row, and, and he, he breaks into that teaching on the power of the tongue, the sin of the tongue, the destructiveness of the tongue, the potential of the tongue, and the redeemed's life. Um, when he breaks into that, this is what he says. Not many of you should become teachers. In other words, not many of you should make, a, make your living uh, using your lips in the kingdom of God, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Also, as we were going through uh, James's teaching on the sins of the tongue, he said in chapter 4, um, he was talking against speaking down to others in a judgmental way. We covered this two weeks ago. And he, he writes this. He's, again, pairing sins of the tongue with the reality that Jesus is judge. Verse 12, there, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. We were in chapter 5 quite a, a while ago um, talking about, um, uh, on another thread, talking about the trial thread, talking about what to do with those people who sin against you and cause you loss. And James taught against grumbling against them. And he taught grumbling against as opposed to forgiveness, grumbling as a sin. And then he writes this, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So I want to take on this idea that Jesus is judge, he'll come back as judge, he came first in grace, he'll come back in glory, and part of that is judgment. And I want to take on this statement, this question that I'm about to give you, I want to take it on in two weeks, uh, three parts over two weeks, we'll cover one and a half points this morning. Here's the statement. Since believers will be judged into eternal life, what difference does it make today? Since believers will be judged into eternal life, what difference does it make today? First, we'll talk about the reality that believe, believers will be judged. We'll, we'll then talk about what I mean by into eternal life. And then predominantly next week, we'll talk about so what. Okay, if that's true, what, ma- what does it matter uh, in my life today? But first, the very clear teaching of Scripture uh, that you and I, if we have our faith in Christ we will be judged when he returns. Look at the verses in your worship folder, insert chapter 2, verse 12. It's the foundational verse for James. In his book, this is the foundational verse on judgment, the foundational premise on Christ as judge. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, And then in chapter 3, verse 1, the next verse in the judgment thread in James, James includes himself as one of the four pillars of the New Testament church, as an apostle, um, as a bishop in Jerusalem. He says, me and all the other teachers will also be judged. And in fact, we'll be judged more searchingly, uh, we'll be judged more extensively, we'll be judged more strictly. So it's not just... Everyone so speak and so act because you're going to be judged in the future. He's saying that those who teach in the church, the pastors and the elders, they will be judged more extensively than the flock. And Now, James is not the only New Testament writer to teach that believers from top to bottom, from the apostles, capital A, in the first century to the laity, he's not the only author to teach that we're going to be judged the other three pillars of the church taught it too. Peter, John, and Paul, all of them said that believers will be, will be judged by Jesus when he comes back in glory. Listen to a few of the things Paul said. Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each of us will give an account of himself to God. And 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear. Before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body. Now, I can almost smell your brains melting down right now. I I can I can feel literally feel the tension between your ears and the tension in this room. You are saying, hold on a second. I'm going to be judged by what I've done? This feels awful contrary to what you've been teaching for the last three and a half years in this church. Week in and week out, you're constantly telling us that if we receive the gospel, that we're righteous in Christ, we're justified by faith, That we're declared righteous by God, not because we've done anything good, but because we believe in the life and the death of Jesus. You tell us week in and week out, whether it's in the sermon or in the worship liturgy, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment against those united to Christ by faith. And, and, And I hear you say week in and week out, you have been teaching me that I will grow. I'll become more free. I will bear fruit. I will become more loving like Jesus. I will become more human if I believe this gospel that you preach, if I really believe that I'm forgiven, if I really believe that I'm righteous, if I really believe that Christ was judged for me and the Father loves me and that the Father can't stop looking at me and he cares deeply for me, that if I'll receive this acceptance that is mine in Christ, if I make my home there, as Rue says, if I put my identity there, that I'll become more joyful, I'll become more peaceful, I'll become more content, more loving, I'll become better in the most biblical best sense of the word. And now you're saying that I'm going to be judged one day, that when Jesus comes back, I'll have to stand before him as he sits on his judgment seat, and I'm going to give an account for my life, and I'm going to receive my due. The answer is yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. This is what James teaches. It's what Peter teaches. It's what John teaches. It's what Paul teaches. But before you check out, if you're rebellious enough literally, or before you check out, if you're sort of um, passive aggressive, before you check out figuratively, remember the next clause in our statement. Point two, a much longer point. Believers will be judged into eternal life. We will be judged into eternal life. When James writes that believers are to be judged or will be judged, it is not about condemnation. It is not about justification. It is not about the judge declaring us guilty or declaring us righteous. It's not about God saying, I have a judgment against you. You're guilty in my sight. Get away from me. It's not about Jesus saying, uh, or God saying, you're righteous and you're holy in my sight. You can come in. It's not about condemnation. It's not about justification. It's about evaluation and examination. We need to know this. James and Paul both teach that God saves by sheer grace, that God chooses who to save, and he saves them from start to finish by grace through faith, And at the same time, James and Paul both teach that the lives of those who are saved by God will be judged, will be examined, will be evaluated when he returns as to how much and to what extent we lived our lives for him and his kingdom instead of our own. It's not about condemnation. It's not about justification. It's not about whether God loves us or whether God hates us. It's about an evaluation of what we did in response to his love. In Revelation 20, the apostle John uh, is recording a vision about the future, and it's, it's known as the great white throne judgment in the middle of Revelation 20, and, and he's riding on the level of justification and condemnation in that passage. It's not the level James is talking about in our text It's at a different level. In that passage, the level of guilt and righteousness, John tells us that when Jesus sits on the great white throne, earth and sky will flee from his presence. And and the sea, death, and Hades, uh, these are images and these are words and these are realities that the Bible uh, uh, speaks of of hell in. The the sea, the death, and the Hades, they're going to give up those who are spiritually dead, those who are not believers, those who are not united to Christ by faith. And the dead will stand before Jesus, according to John and Revelation. 20, and John says that there are books, lots of books, and they'll be out in front of Jesus, and, and the books will be filled with the facts of what the spiritually dead have done in their lives. And he says this, the dead will be judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Not only that, Paul says in Romans 2 that the secrets found in the lives and the hearts of those outside of the faith of Jesus. They will become manifest. They'll be made known and those will be added to the judgment. And the dead, unbelievers, after hearing of their actual self-seeking guilt explained to them from the books, they will hear Jesus say, condemnation, judgment against And John says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible is clear that the eternal destiny of those who do not trust in Jesus, the Bible is clear, the eternal destiny of those who do not trust in Jesus is this, it's hell. It's physical pain illustrated by fire. It's relational torment, uh, uh, illustrated by isolation and utter darkness. It's psychological terror, illustrated by drowning, and and it's called tribulation and distress. It's a word for being pressed in upon. Uh, So both uh, uh, the the physical pain of fire, uh, the emotional pain of isolation, uh, uh, the psychological pain of being pressed in on forever. Most of all, it will be a spiritual agony. The dead in hell will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus at the great white throne and they will bend the knee and worship to that beautiful sight and then they will spend forever away from that glorious man in his kingdom and that will be hell. And John says the dead will be condemned by what they did in their lives and to make Matters worth worse, Revelation 20, it insinuates what other texts clearly teach in Scripture, that each person will experience hell to a varying and different degree, that each person in hell, to the extent of their misery, will be based on according to what they actually did. It's important that we understand on this side of the ledger that hell will be experienced to varying degrees because next week I'm gonna teach you on this side of the ledger that heaven will be experienced to varying degrees. Jesus clearly taught that there were some who would have an experience of hell that is less or more tolerable than others depending on what they did with their lives. There are some who know God and they know what he wants and they rebel against him anyway. And Jesus says they will have a more severe beating than those who did not know him and did not understand his ways, but only broke his laws. And Jesus also says that there are some people and some places who don't work against his kingdom knowingly. They just work for their kingdom. And he says that their hell will be an experience that is more bearable and more tolerable compared to those who in the building of their kingdoms actively worked against Jesus' kingdom. He says that the Jewish professionals of his day, if they do not repent, they will have the greater condemnation. But not only does this text speak to the just and final and condemnation of unbelievers, it speaks to the justification of believers. The main point this morning, I'm still in Revelation 20, the salvation of believers. John says there's lots of books in front of Jesus. And then he juxtaposes, he compares to that. In contrast to that, he says there's one book, singular. It's the book of life. It's the opposite of death. And he says that in the book of life, it's just chocked full of names, no deeds, just names. And he says negatively that if your name is not found in the book of life, you're thrown into the lake of fire. And then chapter 21 says positively, it's the glorious teaching of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the pure and consummated kingdom of Jesus. And it says in chapter 21, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are granted entrance into this kingdom. And John teaches in Revelation that this book was written before the foundations of the world. And the names of those in the book are the faithful believers in Jesus. Names not deeds, not works, not descriptions of achievements. It's obviously about election. God chooses who he wants to save, and it's about sheer grace that he saves us from the beginning to the end by grace through faith. So this is where we're at. According to the four pillars of the New Testament church, the judgment of believers is not at the level of condemnation and justification. Our justification, our entrance into the kingdom forever is based on God's grace. It's based on the life and the death of Jesus. It is not based on our works, but it is an evaluation, an examination, a testing as to how much of our lives and to what extent we gave our lives to Jesus in response to the gracious salvation he has bestowed upon us. Paul in 1 Corinthians writes about it this way writes about this testing, this judgment of believers. He uses the metaphor of building a house. And he says, in essence, I have laid the foundation of the house. The foundation is Christ. And then he says, be careful how you build on that foundation. This is all in scripture, what I'm about to read. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. You can build with gold, silver, and precious stone, or you can build with hay, wood, and straw. And then he says this, each one's work will become manifest, made known. The day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, it makes it through the test, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, justified. Justified. There's clearly two aspects going on here. There's the entrance into the kingdom, justification by God's sheer grace, and then there is the response that we give to that in our lives that will be examined and evaluated and tested. There is reward. Listen very carefully. The judgment of believers is either predominantly about or maybe exclusively about, this is what it's about. This is the purpose. Are you ready? This is why you'll stand before Jesus. It's either predominantly about or exclusively about God praising the saints for their service and God giving the saints their eternal reward for how they live their life in response to his salvation. It's either predominantly about or exclusively about God praising his saints and giving them their reward that they will enjoy forever. This is why I said clearly that believers are judged into eternal life. Into eternal life. When John writes about the day of judgment in Revelation, he summarizes it to this uh, two ways. He says, if you want to think about the judgment seat of Christ, there are subpoints under these points, but there are two main points. It is the time for the dead to be judged and it's the time for rewarding the servants of God, Revelation 11. Listen again to Second Corinthians 5. This is Paul, two believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him. What is, it's a word for compensation. It's a word for pay. So that each one may receive, receive what is due him for the things done while in the body. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And the little orphan inside of me that believes God doesn't love me freaks out when I hear that because I know what I've done in the dark. But if I'll keep reading, he's clearly saying something good. Each one will receive his commendation, his praise from God. In Matthew 6, we're gonna look at this next week, the so what of this truth. Jesus says, you want reward in heaven, do everything you can in secret and in hiding in the face of God and not in the face of men. And Paul's saying, if you'll do that, when he comes back, he's gonna make everything known and he's gonna praise you for how you lived out the righteousness that God gave you by faith. God will shed light on the good deeds done in secret and he will praise his children. Now, a little rabbit trail. And it's gonna, it's gonna appear theoretical at first, which I, I agree that is my Achilles heel. It is gonna appear theological at first, which I know is my problem. But, but this is a pastoral rabbit trail. Okay, I know that's hard for you to believe about me. But this is a shepherding rabbit Rabbit trail. When I say that the judgment of believers is either predominantly about, or maybe exclusively about, God praising the saints and giving the saints their reward, I want to know why. I want you to know why I said predominantly, and maybe exclusively. Okay, are you with me? So when you stand before the great white throne, I want you to understand that it's either ninety-five percent about your reward, or it's a hundred percent about your reward. And I'm, I'm gonna introduce you into the reason why I'm saying it that way, because pastorally, I want you to know how to read scripture when you come to it. Some commentators that I deeply respect, believe, and I'm not going to go into the whole argument. We could offline over a beer, it'd be great. But some of them believe that God, when we're at the judgment seat of Christ, he will review with us our sins, our missteps, our folly, and our lost opportunities. There are a couple of passages, like Romans 14, where Paul says, we will all give an account. And some commentators and theologians I deeply respect and love uh, think that that means God's going to want to cover with us every aspect of our life uh, um, that he gave us. And there are other commentators that I also deeply respect, and, and they will respond this way, no way, no condemnation for those in Jesus, He promises in Micah 7, I'm going to cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. David said in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that's that's how far he's going to remove our transgressions from us. God promises in Isaiah, and it's a promise picked up on by the author of Hebrews. He says, I will remember their sins no more. He's just going to praise us, and he's just going to reward us. And those on the other side who think God is going to bring up our sin, our folly, and our lost opportunities, they're going to respond this way. He will do all of that after we give an account. It's all about sequence and timing. God wants us to be sad. He wants us to regret our sins. He wants us to grieve the loss of missed opportunities. It's not that God wants to shame us or somehow punish us, but God somehow wants to glorify himself all the more in the new heavens and new earth after being shown our sin. We'll want his grace and his mercy and his love even more. And the debate goes on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This is not a theoretical rabbit trail. I don't know what I believe about this, so I can't land that plane anywhere. But no matter where you land, no matter who is right about this, let me tell you what God does not want inside of us when when we think about that day. Let me tell you about what God doesn't want in our hearts when we look forward to seeing him face to face. He does not want fear to describe us. In the liturgy earlier, Brandon read, we read with him 1 John 4. Listen again. We believe the love that God has for us in the gospel. God is love, and because God is love, because we're his beloved children, we're to have confidence for the day of judgment, not confusion. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and shame. If we're afraid of the day of judgment, we have not yet been perfected or made whole or made complete in the love of God that is already ours. And I personally really don't know if the bad parts, the evil parts, the rebellious parts, the foolish parts, I don't know if they'll be brought up by Jesus when we stand before him at the judgment seat. But if he brings them up, it won't be about whether or not he accepts us or loves us or wants us in his presence. The point of bringing them up, if he does, will not be to cause fear in us or to shake our confidence in him, But it will in some way be a manifestation, a proclamation of his grace, his love, his salvation. I think if Jesus mentions my sin, multiple books it would take to cover them. I think it will feel like other contexts in my life where someone was in authority over me and they had defining power in my life and and they pointed to my failures and my sins and my follies and they pointed to them all in the context of an accepting loving relationship. Some of us had coaches, some of us have had teachers, some of us the good fortune of parents. We've had these folks in our lives who could evaluate us and examine us and study us and never once did we doubt whether they loved us and enjoyed us and wanted us. I, I will illustrate it with two rather long illustrations this way. There's a fear-based evaluation, and there's an acceptance-based evaluation. When, when I was in a junior in high school, I uh, did uh, some pretty dumb, sinful, uh, foolish, rebellious stuff at the end of that year, uh, right before the seniors graduated, which is when we tend to do stupid, dumb, rebellious things in high school but I actually did them all year. I only got caught there at the end of the year. And, and I was in the principal's office at the private school where my parents had sent me my whole life at great expense to themselves. And the principal was uh, reading off the results of their investigation into my life. And, 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 and his, he was reading the results of their investigation, an investigation that included gathering information from some of my friends, those little turncoats. And some of the uh, investigation was based on my own confession while being waterboarded. And, uh, and And it was a long list of rebellion, stupidity, arrogance, deception, gross stuff. And I had learned the night before. And now that I'm 36, I think I know why they did it this way. I learned the night before that I I would be sitting in the principal's office the next morning, and my fate would be determined right before my eyes. I would hear the evidence they had against me, which I was not privy to all of it, and 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 I would have uh, some of my turncoat friends had not told me that they turned on me, And, and I would have the chance to say something. And then this committee of teachers and administrators they would they would determine my fate right there before my eyes. I didn't sleep a wink. I mean, I was just eaten up with fear, anxiety, confusion. I didn't know my place in the community. I didn't know where I would be that next night. I had no idea what the authority over me was going to say. It was hell. And so the principal makes his presentation and and he he tells all the things they thought I was guilty of, but they couldn't prove. And they they said all the things that, that they had evidence that proved I was guilty, and they had all the things that I had personally admitted to being true. It was extensive, it was it was a long list, missteps, sins, folly, missed opportunities, and I was shaking. I was sweating. I was nauseous. I mean, I was on the verge of collapse. I don't know what I said. Uh, I'd like to go back and find Principal Peterson and say, what did I say in my chance to speak? I literally have no memory of an out-of-body experience. They deliberated in front of me, some arguing for keeping me around, some arguing for letting me go. And in the end, they kept me around for another year. That's fear-based evaluation. Compare that to acceptance-based evaluation. I was planting uh, about four years ago before starting the work here of planting this church. Uh, Tricia and I attended our denomination's Church Planter Assessment Center. And and in our denomination, the assessment of potential church planters is is a week in duration. And during that week, uh, I'm absolutely, utterly convinced uh, that, that, that the goal of that week is to have the church planter and his wife crack, crumble, uh, completely and utterly collapse and lose it. And the goal is not to see whether or not the church planting couple will, will crack, but how they crack. It's not will they collapse, but how do they collapse? Because collapsing is inevitable in the endeavor we are being assessed for. And so uh, in that week, six to seven couples, uh, a few singles are being evaluated and assessed and we're all in community. You have to preach, you have to defend your call, you have to know the word. Uh, you argue with a literal skeptic about the faith. Uh, you you you, uh, you work in these groups on projects that are gonna be up against other groups and it's part of your evaluation. And sometimes they'll take you and switch you to other teams if they don't feel like the projects are going well. They throw your sleep off, they throw your eating off. Uh, they, uh, Trish and I sat in front of four different counselors. They all shared information with one another and they amped it up on us as time went on. You're constantly being observed. It's incredibly unnerving. That's the week of the assessment, but prior to arriving at the assessment, you fill out multiple pages of application. You have, I couldn't remember if it's 12 or 18, but I think we had 12 to 18 different recommendations filled out for us, not them saying they're really sweet people, you should let them in, but asking specific, blunt, direct questions about us and our lives and our history, questions from A to Z. And the assessors, before they get there, they pour over all of that information and they know you, and they, they, they know you better than you know yourself, and, and because your friends don't really tell you the truth, usually. They'll just usually tell it on an evaluation. And, <laughs> and there we are. We're at the end of the week. We finally have our time where we're going to hear their evaluation of us. More, more importantly, we're going to hear whether or not we're qualified to church plant. And, and, and from what we can tell, from what we could tell, our lives were riding on the next half hour. Our lives were riding on what they declared from on high. Whatever they put in the record about us in our denomination, we felt like this was it. I'd already resigned from my previous call. I'd already bought a house in Orlando. I already had my kids in schools here. We already committed to this presbytery to plant this church so long as we passed the assessment. And in walks two assessors, one of them, Uh, in my mind, had the most evidence against me. He knew stuff about me from that week, and he knew stuff about me from a previous life. And I was very concerned. He walked in with a multiple-page evaluation. There was evidence from others. There were things I had confessed to personally. It was an extensive list of sins and missteps, folly and missed opportunities. And they sat down, and I was shaking, sweating, nauseous, on the verge of collapse, And the first word out of his mouth was this. You're in. You're qualified. You're accepted. You passed. I started weeping. The relief and the release of hearing those words, you're in, just about undid me. But listen, for 45 minutes, they delineated our weaknesses our sins, those places where we needed to grow, those places where we needed to see transformation or church planting would be more painful than we could possibly imagine. And guess what we did? We listened very intently. We hung on every word they had to say. I can remember almost word for word a lot of what they said because they'd already given us peace, they'd already given us rest, they'd already given us hope and love and acceptance Such is the evaluation of the saints and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the illustration breaks down in a horrific way, and the horrific way it breaks down is this: that the assessment center looked at us as a couple, and sure, it was God's grace and His power; it's all under His control. But they saw in us the potential to be decent church planters, but in the gospel at the great white throne judgment. Jesus doesn't look into the book of my life and see in it works and deeds that are meritorious achievements that invite me in and says, you pass, you're qualified in the gospel. Jesus looks into the lamb's book of life and he finds my name written in it prior to the creation of the world. And he is the lamb who was slain, gives me entrance into his kingdom by his life, by his righteousness, by his wounds, by his shame, by his collapse. By his death, he says you're in. And if at that point he wants to bring up my sins, I'm all ears. If at that point he wants to talk about my folly, let's talk about it. At that point, under his arm, in his kingdom, past that place, in the sequence of judgment, let's talk about it. Glorify you, give me some good, let's keep marching into the kingdom. I don't know. If it's going to come up, but if it does, it's going to be an awful lot more like that than fear. Now, I feel like I at least need to close this way. Next week, I'm going to talk about the reward more specifically. I'm going to talk about the nature of the new heaven and new earth, and I'm going to talk about the nature of the reward, and I'm going to talk about some misconceptions about that. I'm gonna talk about what do you do this afternoon if all that's true, okay? That's next week. But I feel like before we leave today, I need to speak to my friends who are not believers. I know that in this church, I personally know that in this room, there are some of you, I lost you when I said believers will be judged because you don't define yourself as a believer yet. There are some of you, whether you use the word or not, you're a skeptic. That is, you're full of doubt. There, there, Christians don't stop listening to me because I'm talking about you too right now. There are some who I would call seekers. That is, you have questions. There are some that I would say you're just exhausted from faking it as if you're good enough. I want you to know that no matter what describes you, that City Church is a community that you can be a part of to express your doubts, to ask your questions, and to confess your exhaustion. Because in me and every one of us is a little bit of all of that. I want you, I just wanna ask you a question. When I am speaking about what the Bible says about hell, if it sobered you. And when I was speaking about what the Bible says about the new heavens and the new earth and the grace and the acceptance and the love of God, if that captivated you, if you're sobered and or captivated, I just want to ask you, do you feel your need of him? Believer or one who would not call themselves a believer yet, do you feel your need of him right now? Set the doubts aside for a second. Set the confusion aside for a second. Set the shame aside for a second. Do you feel a need for the gracious, loving, forgiving God who died for you? There's one of my favorite hymns from the 1700s by a man, Joseph Hart. It's called Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It's an invitation for you and for me. He says, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. He says, come to Jesus. Jesus is full of compassion He's full of love. He's full of power. This is what he says in the last verse of the hymn. If you want to come, he says, all the fitness he requireth, the only thing that you have to be fit for to come to him, the only thing you have to have in your corner to move towards him, to be saved by him, the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. There are some in the world who are irreligious, They hear of Jesus, they see his teaching, they see his claims, and they think it's irrelevant for their lives. There are some in the world and in the church who are religious. We we see that we've made a mess of our lives. We see that we've offended God. We see that we have hurt others. And we think that inside of us, we can do something about what we have done. But if you feel your need for Jesus, that's a third way. That's the way of the believer. I've made a mess of my life. I have offended God. I deserve hell and worse. But I feel my need for him. And I open wide my heart to him. And with the core of my being, I say to Jesus now, believer or new believer today, I receive your forgiveness. I take your righteousness. I know you love me. You can have the rest of my life. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, we, we come before you now and we thank you that you are so gracious and good. You are so loving and kind. You are so powerful and effective. We thank you that you watch us individually, that you take notes on us, that you shepherd us and pastor us so well, that you orchestrate our lives so beautifully and lovingly. We thank you, Jesus, that your salvation is so amazing, so magnificent, your grace so rich and so free, that no matter how this dilemma plays itself out in the future, we can be without fear and full of faith and knowing and confidence where we stand with you. We thank you. Christ. In you, there is no condemnation. We thank you, Father, that you have said we can come in because of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you cause us to believe these things, and would you walk, cause us to walk in them? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.